Get the next 10 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £1. There's no commitment and you can cancel at any time, but hurry because this offer runs for a week only. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we look back on the life and reign of Queen Elizabeth II. First up, for the lead feature this week, Ian Wilson has written about Queen Elizabeth II's role as a constant in a country that has changed so much. And he joins us now, along with Graham Viney, author of Last Hurrah, the 1947 Royal Tour of South Africa. Firstly, Andrew, in the magazine this week, you remind us of Philip Larkin's tribute to the Queen for her Silver Jubilee. To paraphrase, he said that unlike the country she ruled over, she did not change. Why was that so important? Well, I think everything else has changed, and people find that quite disconcerting. And I think... One of the reasons there's been such an outpouring over the last week is that whether you're pro or anti-Brexit, that divided the country. The poverty divide gets worse rather than better. There are all sorts of cultural divisions, class divisions, which we don't know what to do with and we're worried by. And you look to this one focus, the monarchy, the Queen, and she hasn't changed. And however little she appeared to do. People found it very reassuring. And Graham, Andrew says in his piece that the strength of the Queen's personality was that it was kept hidden, even though she went through the motions. She wasn't revealing much of her own self. Do you think that was a calculated decision? I think it probably was. I mean, her mother's personality was certainly more vivid and more sort of on the, on the line, as it were. And perhaps her father, to whom she was closer, maybe his personality you know, was more, more like hers, and she, she took the cue from that. I think it's a very useful thing to have in, in, in a role like that, or in a un, unique role like that. And I think Andrew's very right to make, a, make that point in his piece. Andrew, at the time of recording, we are in Westminster on, on Wednesday, just before the doors of Westminster Hall are open to the public to see the Queen lying in state. And from the window here, we can even see the, the huge queues that have gathered. What have you made of the proceedings and the pageantry, I suppose, that's gone along with her death and, and the accession of, of King Charles III? Do you think it is a, a, a sort of reminder to people of this this old era from 70 years ago, where since that time, as you say in your piece, a lot has changed? Well, I just I think people have looked to her and it's really been a bit like prayer because uh, prayer is, for most people anyway, <laughs> unless they're mystics, is a one-way process. And people gaze towards the Queen. They don't actually get very much back. She's perfectly polite, probably, if you meet her. But um, as we've already established, she's rather a, a sphinx, a mysterious person. And they pour so much hope into their respect for this institution of the monarchy. And to that extent, I think there's a double sadness in these long, long queues everywhere. And now, particularly in Westminster, on the one hand, there's a sadness of grief, because people do feel genuinely 
grief-stricken to have lost this figure, who's been a figure in most people's lives, in their imaginative lives, for 70 years. And on the other hand, I feel there is something sad, because I think hope is always sad. And I think people are hoping that the monarchy will somehow or another ease us through or obliterate the very great social problems which we're facing in this country. Yes. Andrew, you said there that there's a sort of idea about the Queen that, that people are very sad about. I mean, do, do you think in a sort of perhaps slightly paradoxical way, part of the reason there is so much affection for her is precisely because we knew so very little really about what she thought about very much at all, apart from, as you say in your piece, a sort of love of horses, dogs and jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> I think that's I think that's true. Going back to what Graham was saying we were talking about earlier, she's been lucky because she had the kind of temperament which didn't want to put herself forward. My suspicion is that nobody really knew her very well. My suspicion is that her husband, her ladies-in-waiting, her friends, they respected her, they loved her, but they didn't know her as well as perhaps, uh, as I've already said, people knew her mother or her sister, where the, where the personality was very strong and, and immediately observable. Whereas I think the Queen was a, always a very reserved person, and it's tremendously helpful if you're doing this important but rather boring job of being the constitutional monarch in a, in a, in a parliamentary democracy. And I think her son, who's not like that, would, would, is going to find things very, very difficult. Well, I agree. Graham, I was going to ask you that. I mean, obviously, we do know a lot about King Charles's beliefs. Um, he's been heir to the throne for so long that we, we know what he cares about. Do you think that's going to be an issue during his reign? Well, I mean, I, I, I think and, and hope that in the spirit of Prince Hal becoming Henry V, that when Edward VII from Prince of Wales, when, you know, when Queen Victoria died, a lot of the old courtiers said, this is the end. And in fact, he stepped up to the mark and in the new role became very successful. Were you reassured by his accession speech when we heard the first speech from Certainly. him? As, yeah. Certainly, you know, even if he's had help with it. But I think there's also in a lot of people what I call the cavalcade element in their makeup. Cavalcade meaning the, the, the Noel Card play that took the audience through the years, I don't know, 1898 to 1930. And that these are the, the, the moments that sort of peg the passing of time and people like to respond to them and feel part of it in their lifetime. And Andrew, in your piece, you make the point that the Queen had her finger on the pulse of what was going on, often rather more sensitively than the politicians. Do you get the impression that she was interested in politics or did she try to stay out of it as much as possible? I mean, unlike you and me, she had to read the cabinet papers every single week of her life. So, yes, I think to that extent, she did take an interest in politics. There are several prime ministers, including Churchill, and Harold Wilson, who testified to the fact that they sometimes hadn't read them all properly themselves. And she would make some remark which showed that she was aware of what was going on. I don't think she was political in the sense of having strong political views, unlike, for example, her disastrous uncle, Dickie Mountbatten, who, who had all sorts of views about things. And indeed, at one point, a strange little group of people were proposing him as a dictator during the Harold Wilson era. But she wasn't in that sense political, but she did know what was going on. And I think the prime ministers, it wasn't just flannel when they said they found the weekly 
meetings with her useful. They found it useful rather than you would, as you would if you were, you had a word of reference beside you because she had a good memory and she did know what was going on. Graham, I would like to ask you a little bit about the Queen's devotion to the Commonwealth. And you are an expert in the Queen's relationship with South Africa, which used to be a Commonwealth realm. I wonder if we can get your thoughts about the Queen's relationship with the Commonwealth and, and whether you think there are tensions that still exist there and perhaps tensions that that might continue during the reign of our, our new King, King Charles III. Well, I mean, I think I, I said before, you know, I think that that first tour to South Africa in 47 was very formative. She saw a racially divided country still run by whites or mostly run by whites at that stage. And she was facing, you know, a lifetime, as his 21st birthday speech suggested, of living and reigning over this extraordinary entity. And I think she and her father particularly realized that there needed to be an honorable way out of empire and into a new version of it, which was the Commonwealth and a multiracial Commonwealth. I personally think that, you know, the the gripes that you hear from Jamaica and whatever, I'm afraid there is still a terrible element of looking for apology. And for apology, you can very often read handout. And that is something that they will, you know, will have to, to deal with and face. You know, do you, can you pay for supposed past misdeeds of your ancestors. I think it's it's not an easy one. And it is it is sometimes said of the Queen that she considered the Commonwealth to be her greatest achievement. Do you think that is true? Well, I mean, I think she's, she kept it going and she's handed it on to her son and heir. A, a lot of people would have said 50 years or 60 years ago, not a hope in hell, but I mean, it, it does survive. And, you know, there's no doubt that it does some good in local matters, put it that way. People want to belong to the Commonwealth. I mean, that's what's so... No, absolutely. It, that the people who actually ask to belong to the Commonwealth... I you do never think belonged to it before. You know. Yes, and I do think it's her achievement because you've, you, you talked earlier about her possible interest in politics, and I was saying she had a lack of interest. But one of the things we do know that she, she politically intervened she sided with the Commonwealth over the question of South Africa, Mandela, against the Conservative Prime Minister of the day, who was against sanctions. And the Queen sided with the Commonwealth. She was in favour of sanctions against South Africa uh, while Mandela was in prison and while apartheid was uh, in existence. And similarly, much earlier in her reign, when Harold Macmillan, the Conservative Prime Minister, told her to have nothing to do with Nkrumah in Ghana, as it was to become she flew off there and she actually danced with Nkrumah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she, she, was, she became queen in Africa. She had a particular feeling for Africa. And I think she went to Africa a lot. I think she was a big figure in, in the story of, of the development of nations after the Second World War to that extent. And I'd, I'd like to just finish by asking you both how you think the history books will look back on the Second Elizabethan Age with the benefit of hindsight. I mean, you know, there's no doubt that there is a long story of political decline, whether that was avoidable or whether that's just a cycle. 
I don't know. I'd love to, Mr. Wilson, where he pinpoints that if one's been brutal, is it 1939? Or, you know, was there a great industrial war effort here? Is it 1945 with the welfare state or the end of Lend-Lease? Is it 1947, the end of the empire in India? Is it 56 with Suez? Is it the 60s and 70s with huge industrial unrest, but perhaps not very well handled by Labour governments? Where, where does one peg the, the, the dramatic decline? Well, I mean, what you've been describing is bump, 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 bump down the stairs. Yes. Uh, and each bump is more disastrous than the last. Obviously, morally speaking, most people in this country felt they had to be involved in the Second World War. The price paid, and it was a literal price paid to the Americans for land lease was for the British Empire to be dissolved and for yeah. us to be naturally ruined. Yeah. And after that, there was no chance of Britain ever becoming a major player in the world stage ever again. And so I think people will look back over the last 70 years as the end of the British Empire, the end of Britain as a great country, the end of Britain as a power. And the Queen was the person who had the dignity and niceness and personal goodness to be a good monarch in the circumstances, but she couldn't stop the decline. Yeah. She wasn't part of it, she couldn't stop it. Thank you, Andrew and Graham. Next up, in the magazine this week, Michael Hall takes us inside the Royal Collection. He joins us now alongside the artist Susan Ryder, who was commissioned to paint the Queen's portrait in 1997. Michael, to start with, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about the Royal Collection and how the Queen made her own mark on it? Well, the Royal Collection is the historic art collection associated with the British monarchy. It really goes back to the 16th century. There's very little in it that dates before that time. It encompasses the works collected by the great collectors of the British monarchy, Charles I and George IV particularly. It expanded greatly in the age of Queen Victoria. But the wonderful thing about it is that it's not confined to a single gallery, like a museum. It's distributed across all 15 of the occupied and unoccupied royal palaces. So you, most people will encounter it in... I suppose what you might call a domestic setting, if you could call somewhere like Buckingham Palace a, a domestic setting. As far as the Queen is concerned, I mean, it's said, and it's, I've read it actually in the papers recently, that you know, she made practically no additions to the Royal Collection. I think that's based on the sort of assumption that she wasn't interested in art. I mean, it's not really true. The first thing is she did make quite important acquisitions guided by the, the advice of her specialist art historical curators. But the collection grew enormously thanks to the many gifts that are made to her, sometimes on royal visits, sometimes by visits to this country. I think the point you can make is that although very large in number, they're not necessarily very high in quality. But it's not true to say, as many people have done, that the royal collection hasn't grown during her reign. And, and Susan, in relation to the question of, of, of whether the Queen was interested in art, which Michael touched on there. You painted the Queen in portrait in 1997 over six sittings. Did you get the sense that she was curious about the process? Well, it was quite interesting that at the end of the first sitting, and it was quite a big canvas, it was about five foot by four foot, and I said, ma'am, would you like to come round and see what I've been doing? And she came round and then said she'd been watching it all the way through because there was a one large sort of grand mirror behind me. Luckily, I hadn't realised that she was watching all my marks and things going on. 
So I, I, I did feel that she was, I definitely felt she was interested, yes. Did she, did she ever give a sense of that she liked the finished product or not? I, I'm, I'm well, thinking... I'm, I'm told she's not allowed to comment, but, no. um, but she said she, it reminded her of her sister and mother. She, was, she talked about it, but she didn't say, she didn't tell me. And, and I was told by the equities that she's not allowed to sort of comment about There's a very good line in your piece, Michael, where you, you do recount her, her comments about the Lucian Freud portrait of, of her, which she did not much care for. Isn't that right? Yes, I think that's the case. I mean, I've been told by several people that she quite strongly disliked it. And there is an anecdote that's gone the rounds, which I've heard in various forms. I think it is probably true that when one of her ladies-in-waiting sympathised with her that she'd been portrayed in this way, she said words to the effect of, I expect you would have preferred it if I'd been in the nude or or something like that. (laughs) Um, I think it's uh, fair to say uh, she didn't care for it. And Susan, can you give us a sense of what it's like as you prepare to paint a portrait of the Queen? I mean, it's obviously a... It's a rich heritage of different paintings of monarchs well, throughout history. I How was, do you go yes. about... Well, first of all, it was what she was going to wear because the RAC, who'd commissioned it for their centenary, um, said they would like her in a cocktail dress. And I, or, and I said, because when it's hanging, her knees would have been at eye level, more or less. I said, could it be an informal e- long evening dress? And they agreed with that. So it was then planning with the dresser what was available. And actually, it was interesting because the dresser had lined up about nine dresses for her that I could choose from. But when I got to Buckingham Palace, there were only two left. And one was a sort of rather dull, dark red woolly dress. And the other was this beautiful green chiffon dress. And I felt that she really had already decided what she wanted to wear and didn't. So I was, it was fairly obvious which one I was going to choose. And... And then I had a lady-in-waiting or somebody who posed in advance, holding the dress over her but not wearing it. So I got my lighting all right because I use a spotlight to get daylight and lamplight to give a feeling of depth. I love doing that. But, of course, when the Queen herself sat, she sat in such a different way, so much more upright and more very elegant. And it was just very interesting how you can't plan too much in advance. It's what... When she's there, you then really make your decisions about how how you're going to portray her. And Michael, do we do we know of any of the pictures within the royal collection that the Queen particularly liked? I was told on pretty good authority that somebody did once ask her what her favourite painting was, and she pointed. So she must have been in the picture gallery at Buckingham Palace at the time to the famous double portrait by Rembrandt of the shipbuilder and his wife and. And that's, you know, it's a very interesting choice. I mean, nobody would deny that it's a great masterpiece. It's also a great art historical value. I don't know if people know the painting, but it shows the elderly shipbuilder working away at his drawings. And he's interrupted by his wife, who's leaning over his shoulder, holding out a piece of paper, which people have speculated might be a shopping list, which he's failed to do or something like that. And she's looking rather cross. And so it is a very enticing and engaging painting. And so I can understand why the Queen would have admired it so much. But it's, I think everyone would think it was a wonderful choice of, of favourite painting. And Michael, looking ahead to Charles III's reign, what do you think will be his role in expanding the Royal Collection? Is, is he also a keen collector of art? 
he is a collector. He's a painter also. He was actually director of the Royal Collection Trust, which is the charity that administers the Royal Collection. So he knows it inside out. But if you don't mind, I would slightly like to backtrack because I think rather a lot of assumptions are made about how the Queen wasn't interested in art. I don't think that was the case. And she certainly wasn't ill-informed about art. Because as a child, George V used to enjoy taking her around the collection at Buckingham Palace. And Queen Mary, who was very seriously interested in art, took her to the National Gallery, the Wallace Collection. So I think she had a pretty good grasp of art history. Whether you know, she appreciated or enjoyed art very deeply, well, it's rather hard to say, because she was reluctant to be drawn on that subject. I think she thought it was something that she could perfectly well leave to her mother, who was a really important collector, and to her sister, who was very interested in art, as well as to her husband and eldest son, both of whom formed collections. Prince Philip was extremely interested in artists as much as art and had a very, very large collection. Um, So I think the Queen thought, you know, they could get on with it, really. It was also said that Princess Margaret and the Queen Mother used to enjoy teasing her about what a Philistine she was because she was only interested in horses. So I think that probably rather encouraged her to clam up slightly if people were talking about art. So I think there won't be such a dramatic change as people think with Charles III as, as monarch. He may possibly want to acquire more contemporary art for the collection. I mean, that's certainly, I think, fair to say, was not an interest of the Queen's it was of Prince Philip's. And I think it will develop much as it has has now, with things of historical interest that come up for sale will be acquired. And I think there perhaps will be a more energetic acquiring of, of contemporary works. And Susan, just finally, when you painted your, your portrait of the Queen, were there other portraits that have been painted of her over the many, many years of her reign that you had in mind and, and, and ones that you particularly liked or, or was or did you try to, to to avoid thinking too much about about other depictions? Well I've always loved the first Anigoni. It's an amazing picture. And I think I was painting her in the same room and apparently the way she held her head was she was looking down the mall from out of the window behind me because I was painting her in I think it's called the yellow drawing room. She's the one next door to the balcony room. But otherwise, I did try not to think about it. I think I had to just go for how she struck me, sitting in front of me, talking to me, and posing, uh, holding her position. But luckily, not too still. I'm used to painting children and dogs and people. And so I quite like somebody who's not too rigid. I'd rather they were talking and... And I really just... It's sort of... Partly my paintwork is instinctive. I'm, I'm better if I don't think consciously of the marks I'm making, but I'm just looking. And then it sort of comes out of the end of my brush. <laughs> thank you, Michael, and thank you, Susan. Finally, Scott Methan has written about his experiences working for the royal household as a piper. He joins us now alongside Anne Denholm, who's a former harpist to the then Prince of Wales. Scott, could you start by giving us a little bit about the background to your role and what exactly it entailed? Yes, the Queen's Piper, or Sovereign's Piper as the proper title should be known as, started in 1843, and the first piper being Angus Mackay, and I was the 15th since that date, and I've now been 17 to date. The role is quite a unique one, I must admit, because I'm the only person that would be in London 
or, or respective palaces, wearing a kilt. So it was always quite funny when people would would have this mad Scotsman greeting you at Buckingham Palace. So, uh, and what the role entailed was quite obviously playing bagpipes from nine o'clock in the morning to 9.15. And I used to always tell people, if you're in Green Park and you know London and you just stand there and listen, you'll you'll know the bagpipes and you can hear them just wafting across uh, across the park. And I used to laugh as well because some staff members would be going into the palace and say, oh, Pipes, because that was your nickname, Pipes, I heard you playing the pipes, you know, through Green Park. So I used to go back and tell the Queen, these these people are late for their work. They should be in, you know. And the rest of the day would be taken up with audiences and any heads of state that may be coming in to see Her Majesty because, or, or that now obviously the Sovereign. And it could be like President Obama, President Trump, President of Turkey, you know, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, all these different huge personalities would come across. And I would be the, the face myself and the Queen's equity, two serving members of the military. And the, the equity would be a tri-service a major to lieutenant colonel. And that would his job would rotate every three years. Piping job's slightly different because it depends how long you have left in your service and if the Queen likes you or the Sovereign likes you. It's personality driven. That's the reality. And I was lucky enough to be there for four and a half years. And that, that was your main role, was to was to help in the day-to-day visits of anybody coming into the palace and just and just take them up to meet the Sovereign and give them the do's and don'ts. And then the equity would get all the TV time and float in there and and take take the, the whoever it was in to see the Queen, whether it be the Prime Minister or whoever. And can you tell us a little bit about your experience playing for royalty and, and what exactly it takes to become the harpist to the now King Charles III? Mm-hmm. Yes, so I was official harpist to His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, as he was then, from 2015 to 2019. And this is a fantastic opportunity for young harpists, right at the beginning of their careers, usually, to serve as part of the royal household. And it involves playing for all manner of ceremonies or dinners or receptions and essentially fulfilling duties of providing music for official events. But the wonderful other side, as well as that privilege, is that within the musical world, you're asked to perform in certain places because of the role. But you're also tasked with the job of promoting and encouraging the culture of Wales. And so, for example, I programmed a lot of new contemporary music by Welsh composers for the harp. That's one way of doing it. Uh, lots of different ways of doing it. And it's, it's a fabulous role. And it tends to be for four years, although it's, it's variable, four years for a young professional and they need to have some connection with Wales, not necessarily that they're Welsh themselves, but some connection. And uh, Scott, did did the Queen have, do you think, a, a, a keen interest in, in bagpipe music? I mean, obviously, it's a, as you said, it's a role that has existed since Queen Victoria. But do you think she personally had a, a strong interest in bagpipe music? And, and I wonder if she had any tunes which you think were her favourites. Yes, I think Her Majesty did enjoy the pipes because I was lucky enough... And a given week, I would speak to the Queen in person more than I spoke to my own Queen, my wife. <laughs> then, uh, and I was with the Queen every day, and I would chat away to her. And, and you know, I was quite quite straight to the point, to be perfectly honest. Obviously, with respect, I, I asked Her Majesty, "Do you like the pipes?" Because I'm not being funny. I, you know, I get more pleasure 
playing to someone that I know genuinely likes your instrument. I think I think it, it takes you to a different level. I think to be honest, Her Majesty really enjoyed it, and and a few times she she spoke to me about various tunes, and she, she actually said to me on one occasion that some of the tunes I'd played in the morning, and it was actually High Road to Linton and Orange and Blue. It was two reels. You go through your whole repertoire of tunes because you don't repeat any tunes within a six-week period when you play outside. So if you think every morning I'm playing eight tunes and you can't repeat any of them and you have a really keen ear that's up watching you at the window. And I, I played these reels because you can march to a reel quite well. Her Majesty had said to me, that's really unusual. I've never heard anyone play that outside uh, Buckingham Palace before. I said, yeah. And she said, it reminds me of when I was doing dances with, with my Margaret. <laughs> and uh, and we used to dance with the young Seaforth Highlanders, officers. And they were lining up to dance with us. These are the tunes and the memories that brought it back. And that's when I asked her, do you, do you enjoy the pipes? She said, absolutely. Because of these memories. She said, just such fondness of when I was in Balmoral Castle and having the Gillies Ball and... And just all these these fantastic memories that get get brought back, and I thought, you know, that just gave me the goosebumps, and I just thought, yeah, this this will do. And on one occasion, it was quite funny because she asked me if I what tune I played after another tune in the morning, and I said, what one exactly do you mean? She says, you know, the one and to Mary had a canary. I went up the leg of your, and she went, no, 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 bikes. No, 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 no. And it was just it was little things like that, you know. It was always quite funny. <laughs> and- and I think I'm right in saying that Charles revived the role of the Royal Harpist in 2000, which was a tradition that had ended in the 1800s. Why do you think he reinstated the position? And, and does he particularly love harp music? And is it going to be a great boost for harp music that the King is known to be such a fan of it? Yes, you are right. The post was reinstated after that gap and restarted in 2000 with the incredible Catherine Finch, who was the first incumbent in the new the new series, as it were. And I I think the now sovereign does love the harp, yes, but I think it's more that he's extremely passionate about the culture of Wales and he was a really, really great advocate of the culture whilst he was in the role of, of the Prince of Wales. And he cares very deeply about it. And it was one of the many things that he did to to promote the culture of Wales and also to foster young talent, which is another key part of, of the motivation behind it. And... Honestly, the the role of, of official harpist to the Prince of Wales has already given the harp a massive boost. And we'll see how, you know, how things progress now over the transition period. But we've already in the harp world gained so much from him having invested in it as a, as a role in the royal household. And Scott, just finally, the leading article in this week's magazine is focused on the Queen's love for Scotland and her love for the Union. Do you think that her love of Scottish culture was a big part of the reason that she she did enjoy the sound of bagpipe music? Yeah, I mean, I think she absolutely loved Scotland. And, and I didn't mean it to sound a bit cliche, but genuinely she did. It was the spring in the step when, when it came to July and Her Majesty would be heading up to Balmoral. And she loved the people there. They were fairly forthright in their, their opinions, uh, the loyalty that some of the staff members, for example, up in Balmoral had shown her, not first generation, but second and third generation families that had worked for, for, for the royal family all the way through, which is absolutely phenomenal. And I think the royal family, I think, will go from strength to strength here. People, I've been asked, you know, do you think that King Charles III will 
connect with Scottish people in the same way as Her Majesty the, the Queen did. And I, I totally do think that will be the case. I think actually uh, King Charles III will probably... He spends that much time up in Scotland at Burke Hall, which will now be hopefully over to uh, Balmoral. And, and, you know, the people of, of Scotland really have always embraced King Charles III. I think he'll do a fantastic job, you know, and I think the royal family in Scotland. And especially with, with Her Majesty passing away in Scotland, it gave... It gave our country, Scotland, an opportunity to really say goodbye and and, and really feel that we were front and centre of, of this. Because it's a celebration of life as well. You know, it's not just the passing of, of the Queen. It, it's, it's celebrating everything to do with the, the royal family. And, and I think, you know, everybody can go away really proud that the, the monarchy is strong in, in Scotland. Thank you, Scott and Anne. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can pick up a copy of the magazine this week, which is full of all sorts of articles about Her Majesty the Queen. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And we do hope you join us again next week. 